Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Today's episode is a topic that we have actually had people request multiple times now, which surprised us, I think, but which is a very interesting topic. And I was kind of excited to dive into this. And it's how to raise children in a time of collapse. And obviously, this topic may not apply to everyone, specifically those who do not have children. But I also like to think that this can be applied in multiple different ways, even if you don't have kids. I think there will be ideas and advice here that one can apply in their own life, and also just in communicating with other people in general about collapse and helping them work through difficult topics. We're going to break this episode up into a couple different sections. Uh, basically, first, we'll start with how we can help prepare our children to face tough times ahead. And then secondarily, we'll talk more about how do we actually cope with collapse, help our children cope with collapse as it's happening. And I think this is a really sensitive topic. That has to be approached the right way. I know generally speaking, Corey, you and I, as we're talking through all of these kind of deep, dark, depressing things, we like to keep things lighthearted. And I imagine we will. But obviously, it's not lost on us just how tragic it is that collapse will have a negative impact on people in general, but especially children. You know, we've talked about the fact that you have kids, Corey, I have kids. You know, the earlier in life you get, when you look at those early years, children are just so innocent. They're so dependent on others. They're, they're so helpless. And it feels like if there's any group of people that collectively we should be making efforts to ensure things turn out the best possible 
way that they can. You know, as a society, we should be looking to make sure things are set up well for children. So hopefully, as, as we talk through this, all of us, whether we have children or not, can have that in mind. When you think about the fact that a child born today would turn 80 after 2100, and you think about how rapidly it feels like things are deteriorating, the timescale in which we generally talk about things being really bad, today's children will inevitably face those extremely tough times in their future. You know, as a parent, I feel this just unrelenting desire, need to protect my children. And like you said, this is a sensitive topic because when it comes to collapse, there are certain things that we simply cannot control. And personally, I feel like the reason that so many people in the collapse community, collapse where people, many of them don't have children. And I think, I think it's for a few reasons. One of them being that people with children generally cannot bear to think of this being the future for their kids. And so they bury their head in the sand or they, they just reject it, right? Another potential reason is that people who learn about this at a younger age choose not to have children in order to protect them. There are, of course, many other potential reasons, but those two are pertinent to this topic, this this episode. And that being said, I know that many of our listeners, because it's been requested, do have children and are looking for ways to be able to help their children and also to be able to help themselves to figure out how to cope through this knowledge when it comes to raising their children. Yeah, so this information, what we're going to be talking about today, is exactly what I need as a parent. But if you don't have children, you likely have nieces or nephews, right? Or you've got neighbor kids that live next door. There's going to be opportunities to build community. I think almost everyone will have the opportunity to have either a positive or negative impact on the children around them as collapse continues to progress. Yeah, well said. And one really important sort of caveat, just... To be clear here, as we usually are on this, Kellen and I are not experts on the topic of child psychology or anything of the nature. We've done our research for this episode. Every child is different. Every family dynamic is different. You know your child in a way that Kellen and I cannot. And so while what we're providing here is some general advice, you have to take into consideration your own situation and circumstances. So jumping in, let's start with how can we help our children build resilience? And this is something, this is a topic we'll dive into deeper in our next podcast about resiliency, but we also want to touch on it here. So if you are a parent of young kids, it is your responsibility to protect your family. And that means that you should be building resilience for the entire family, not just yourself. So when it comes to securing safe access to food or water or shelter, that should include enough resources for your children, right? This is just from a physical standpoint. You want to make sure if you're saving up some food, you have enough and you're taking into account your children's need as they grow. But this podcast and this episode is not to talk about the physical needs of your children or your family. It's more to talk about navigating the topic of collapse, right? Navigating the mental aspect of it, helping children to become resilient from every angle. So there are three different pieces to kind of preparing your children for collapse in my mind. One is the question of actually educating them about the topic. You know, do we actually tell them about collapse? The second is teaching them to be resilient themselves without having to mention collapse at all. And then the third is helping them through the hard things as they're actually happening to them, right, as they're witnessing them. So we'll start with the second thing, 
there are a ton of ways you can help your children become resilient without actually introducing them to the topic of collapse. And this is especially important for young kids that are growing up. You know, young children are extremely impressionable. Studies show that those first five to seven years of life are when our brains are developing the most. And from eight to 10 is when children are most socially influenced. So those early years provide a great chance to help kids build resilient skills without overburdening them with the actual knowledge of social collapse. So what I've done here is I've just picked a, a few different ways we can help our young kids learn resilience. This is not an all-inclusive list. It's not in any particular order, but here's, here's some things we can do for our kids. So one is to teach them the importance of accepting change, right? Children should know and be comfortable with the idea of change in their lives. Collapse or not, change will always be present. There's going to be good change. There will be bad change. But resilience is the ability to adapt to and rebound from those changes right? Their, their attitudes, the attitudes that children have in change will help determine how they take on challenges of collapse later in their life. And so if we can help kids from a young age accept that, be willing to tackle change head on, that will have a positive impact later on in life. Yeah, there's a phrase out there, I can't remember where I heard it, but it's something to the effect of the person who adapts to their circumstances is the person who obtains success. And I think of like, different types of trees, for example. You know, we've recently been watching on the news all these hurricanes and the extreme devastation that they can cause. They wreak havoc not only on man-made structures, but also on nature. And yet I'm just amazed at the way these like palm trees can bend so much in these severe winds and, and basically turn out fine. And so the fact that you can throw a sunny day at them, you can throw a ton of rain at them, you can throw severe winds at them, and they just kind of accept whatever change comes their way makes them much more resilient. Yeah. Meanwhile, there are other trees that if they're extra rigid, they break, right? So it's about that flexibility, being able to bend without breaking. And so I think there are great opportunities to be able to help children navigate change early on in life because they're going to experience changes, right? Whether it's a tough move from one home to another, even just changing from one grade in school to the next, helping kids navigate those changes and appreciate why they're necessary, you'll be setting them up for future success. All right, so moving on, social skills and networking. So I think kids at a young age, they can start obviously building friendships, they can build community. If you teach them to listen to others, to have empathy, teach them to know where they can turn when they need help or guidance, the importance of knowing how to gain trust from others, and when to put their trust in others as well, Building that community early on, helping your children have social skills to, to build community themselves for many reasons is extremely important. We'll talk again in our next podcast about community a whole lot, but for many kids that, that skill set develops early and there are many children that might struggle with that. And so helping them to be able to, to come out of their shell and sort of develop those soft skills early on, I think is important. All right, moving on, teach your children the importance of self-care. You know, making sure that they understand the importance of eating well, making sure they're eating healthy, getting enough sleep, staying hydrated, getting exercise, that they're having enough time to be able to play and relax. And on that topic, making sure they understand the importance of good mental health as they get older, right? Destigmatizing mental health challenges, making sure they know they have resources and, and what those resources are. It's unfortunate that we live in a society where mental health challenges are growing, but if from an early age kids know 
who they can turn to, that they know that there are resources, and helping them develop habits that will keep their mental health strong will, again, put them in a better position to be able to confront life's challenges, especially through collapse, in a more healthy manner. So, so far you've mentioned the ability to accept or embrace, adapt to change. You've mentioned that social side and being able to build community and fostering that in children. You've talked about the importance of self-care. And I think it's good that we're kind of listing these out, right? As a parent, it allows me to know what I need to focus on. But what's interesting is I think even if we weren't worried at all about collapse, like every one of these would be extremely relevant. And like you mentioned at the beginning of the episode, these aren't just relevant for kids. They're relevant for all of us. We all need these skills. But even just calling it out and more clearly defining it helps me know where to put my focus as a parent. Yeah, it's like I should have all of these skills too, right? And I can always be building on them for myself. And the more that I build them for myself and lead by example, the more likely my children are to catch on and develop those skills also. The main reason why it's important that they develop these skills is so that as they go into adulthood, they have flexed those muscles, right? They've worked those muscles and they're not starting from scratch later on like maybe some of us are. And so, yeah, absolutely. These skills are essential for everyone, not just kids, but in early development is a great time for kids to learn this so that they can be practicing it their whole lives. It becomes a habit. It's just what they know instead of having to try and catch up and learn those things later, especially as things are getting harder. And by the way, one of the best ways that children learn is by seeing an example, by seeing it modeled. And so kind of the irony here is that in order to help them, one of the best things you can do is just help yourself. If when a change comes along, you respond to it well, the children around you are going to see that. They're going to see what a healthy response to change looks like. If they see you interacting and building community, they're learning as they watch. They're observing how you take care of yourself and keep your stress levels low. And so here we're talking about kind of high level categories, right? But I think it's important as we're going through this to be thinking, how, how can I implement this for myself? And that's probably going to help me know how I would relate that to my children. Yeah. I mean, people use this example all the time, but I think it's pertinent here. And that's, you know, you're on an airplane and they're giving you the spiel at the beginning of the safety information. And they always say, make sure that the parent that you put your oxygen mask on first on yourself and then put it on your children. And, that, you know, it's essential that you take care of yourself so that you can take care of your kids. If you are not in a good place in these categories, whether that's because you're, you know, if you're not leading by example, but also if you're just, you know, if you're mentally a wreck and that is showing, if you're not in a place where you can focus on helping your child because you haven't helped yourself yet, you're not going to be as effective in helping your child as you should be. So moving on to the next one here, teach them how to have positive outlooks. And this doesn't have to mean hopium or even optimism, but more like what we've talked about multiple times with the Stockdale Paradox, just being able to have resolve in the face of challenges and not to just give in and not to have a victim mentality. You know, you don't want to teach your children that they have no control over any outcome and that everything that happens is happening to them. You know, we should teach children that the way that they react to their challenges is extremely important, that there is always some degree of control. And the one thing that they can control is their attitude when faced with challenges. And that leads nice into the next one, which is teach your children to be critical thinkers. When faced with an obstacle, a problem, or a question, we want them to be able to, to think critically 
and not just go with the flow that mainstream media or social media tells them to you know, teach them to solve problems and answer questions by viewing the whole problem logically. This is a primer for helping kids think in systems, which later in life will naturally lead them to understand collapse. I think in society, we see a pretty big lack in critical thinking in a lot of people. And that just results in them following the status quo, results in doing whatever everyone else is doing. And so one way in which we can kind of help our kids become critical thinkers is to not try and solve all of their problems for them. It's tempting as a parent, and I'm I'm this way, where it's like, it's easier if I just do it. It's going to have better results, might be simpler to just do the task instead of requiring them to do the task and helping them do the task, right? Or if they come to you with a question, it's easier to just answer it instead of helping them find the answer. But if we can take the time and put forth the mental energy required to coach our kids through helping them find answers to their own questions or finding solutions to their own problems, that will make a huge difference. And I actually had the ability to do that today. Doing the research for this episode kind of made me think of it. I noticed that my kids kept coming to me with all these needs, right? And I realized that pretty much most of the time, I just do what they ask, right? Dad, I need water. I'll grab a cup out of the cupboard. I'll fill it up with water, hand it to them. And I realized I should make them get their own water, right? And so we walked through it. I said, you can get your own water. You don't need me to do it. And they whined about it. But we walked through the steps. They gave me reasons why they didn't think they could do it. I asked questions in response to see what they thought they could do to fix that. you know. And eventually, they were able to get their own water. And I could see that they felt empowered by that. And while it took a lot more effort for me to, to do that instead of just getting in the water, next time they'll be getting their own water. And I think one of the biggest challenges with parenting is just that if you want to set your kids up for success, you have to put time in. You have to be very deliberate. It's like having my kids do the dishes I know is going to take three times as long and it's going to take way more effort to teach them where to put things and how to wash the dishes and whatever. It would be so much more convenient for me to just hurry and do it myself. But I have to think long term enough that I'm willing to kind of sacrifice and put in the time now. And, you know, I have to admit, I live in a pretty constant state of like parent guilt <laughs> where I never feel like I'm doing enough, like I'm spending enough time. You know, I might frequently get frustrated with my kids and I know I have to give myself a break. That's just what parenting is. I think we all get frustrated. We all get a little burned out sometimes. And I'm guessing that we all have our moments in which we respond when they ask if they can help do something and you say, no, it's going to be easier if I just do it myself, go watch TV or something, right? Those types of quick responses. And I, and I look back on those and say, man, that could have been a teaching moment. That could have been a relationship building moment. And I, I let it pass. And maybe I even did some damage by saying what I said or whatever. I live in a, a pretty constant state of that mindset. As parents, we have to cut ourselves some slack. This is not an easy job. But like you're saying, the more times that we can recognize it and say, look, I'm going to take the time here. I'm going to take the extra five minutes and I'm going to teach my kids something. Each time we do that is going to be something that benefits them later. And that does lead to the very last one, which is to me most important of all, and that is building your personal relationships with your children. Not, again, to make them dependent on you, but strong caregiver relationships help children to feel confident in themselves and more confident to go out and learn about the world. And that might seem counterintuitive to say the 
better our relationship, the more likely you are to explore the world around you. But I view it as sort of a, a safety net, right? Knowing that, hey, if I have someone I can fall back on, that I can ask questions to when I get stuck or lost, well, then I'm more likely to go out and explore. And by doing that exploring, I'm learning much more. The world is a messed up place right now, and it's getting worse. Frankly, as a parent, I'm terrified of watching my kids grow up and sending them off to school and and all the things I know that they're going to experience with that. But I also know that if I build a strong relationship with them, if I'm able to show them that I trust them, that they can trust me, that we can talk about anything, they can come to me with, with anything, then I can be more confident knowing that they will keep me clued in what's going on in their lives. And they can be confident knowing that whatever happens, whatever fears they have as collapse progresses, that I can be a rock for them, that they can come to me and that we'll do our best to work through anything together. I have no doubt that they'll turn it into teenagers and be way too cool for dad anymore. And all that will go, <laughs> will go out the window, but, but I will try my best now while they're young to, to build that. It really is such a cool opportunity when you think about as a parent or grandparent or anyone who is in a situation in which they can influence a child. Because it's kind of like this sandbox environment, right? It's this place where they can make all sorts of mistakes and get all of that worked out now so that they are set up for success later. You know, you think about like, let's say one of your kids comes home crying because they just found out that their best friend is moving away. One response might be like, chin up, get over it. You're going to be fine. You've got lots of other friends. Don't worry about it. But a parent who takes the time to say like, hey, how do you feel about that? Why do you feel that way? You know, showing some empathy, talking about let's let's figure out what's within your control here and what's not. Oh, yeah, you, you can't control the fact that they're moving away, but you can control what you're going to do next or how you choose to stay in touch with that friend or what your behavior is going to look like when you get to school tomorrow and your friend isn't there. And if you can work through that with them, trying to incorporate all these things that you've talked about, then when you as a parent are not there anymore and they're an adult and they show up at the grocery store and there's no food, instead of having this panic, this emotional response and being totally unprepared for how to handle it, they've experienced negative events before. They've experienced changes. They've learned how to think critically. You've helped prepare them in such a way that as things get more serious and as they're on a larger scale, you've really kind of laid out the runway in front of them. And that might seem like sort of a dramatic jump, right? To be like, oh, we're going from talking about responding to my best friend moving to not having food in the grocery stores. What do I do? But I don't think it's dramatic at all because it's not just that one time that something bad happened that they learned how to react. It's hundreds of times that they have learned because you've shown them, you've talked to them about it, you've helped them figure it out, or they've watched you do it in your own challenges. And they have literally honed those skills over time. Critical thinking is the difference between reacting emotionally to something bad when it happens and perhaps panicking versus reacting calmly. Like you said, figuring out what can I control? What are the next steps? What do I do now? And that is the difference between life and death in so many situations related to collapse or, or emergencies. So I think, I think the connection there is perfect. It's relevant. And again, kids learn those things from a very young age. Well, Corey, each of those points that you've made is fantastic. I'm excited to take those and build on those a little bit more. Like you mentioned, that's kind of like 
hey, I know things are going to get worse. How can I prepare my kids now for when that does happen? But I think it's important for us to also understand how to help kids, not only for what's coming in the future, but what they're facing in the present, because collapse is taking place and they're going to be experiencing it while they're trying to learn how to handle it. And I know, Corey, you talked about how there are those who say, I don't want to have children because I don't want to bring children into this messed up world. I don't want to have to have them suffer. And I'm not one to pass judgment one way or another on on whether somebody should have kids or not, or whether that's moral or ethical for them. But I think it is good to remember that there are multiple outcomes to going through hard things. And so much of it depends on how we react to the situation. One example that I took a look at was like the Great Depression. And you think about how so many people were so desperate and malnourished. There were really difficult things taking place. And definitely people came out of it physically damaged and and psychologically scarred. But on the other hand, it really strengthened the character of an entire generation. You know, it's a generation that has been called the greatest generation going into that World War II era. And we can look at lots of examples. We can look at a, a depression. We can look at those that had their upbringing during a time of war. But honestly, we don't really have to look to these big, dramatic, historical examples. The truth is that many children go through extremely difficult things right now. In fact, there's kind of a widely used framework for measuring traumatic things that kids are going through. It's called ACE, like A-C-E. That's Adverse Childhood Experiences. And they look at things like physical, sexual, and verbal abuse, or physical and emotional neglect, or a parent who's alcoholic or addicted to other drugs, or diagnosed with mental illness, you know, losing a parent to abandonment or divorce, having a family member in jail, the death of a parent, socioeconomic hardship, right? They've got kind of this list. And this method of measuring traumatic things that kids go through isn't perfect. There's, there's plenty of flaws with it. But there have been some large studies that have taken place over the last decade. They found that about half of children, so we're talking 0 to 17, about half of children, or 47.9%, were reported to have at least one of those severely traumatic things. And nearly a third of youth ages 12 to 17 have experienced two or more of those traumatic forms of childhood adversity. So there are just awful things going on. And by the way, when I throw out those numbers, we're talking about just in the United States. If we were to look elsewhere, we would see that those problems are much more prevalent. And so if kids are going through those things now, and we anticipate there will be more and more of that in the future, how do we help children deal with those things at that moment? And one thing that has been super helpful for me is what I learned while getting my undergraduate degree. I've mentioned to you, Corey, that, well, you know this about me. I got my degree in family consumer and human development, family studies, right? It's classes on childhood development, parenting, And sometimes it can be so overwhelming as a parent. Like you said, there's all this guilt. You think of the million things you could be doing better. But there is a model that has been revised over time and it's been proven again and again and again that basically boils it all down to two factors. So originally it came from Diana Bomrand. But those two factors, imagine you're looking at like four quadrants Right? There's there's an x-axis, a y-axis. On the one axis, you've got responsiveness. And on the other is demandingness. 
Another way I think you could say that is you've got like love or affection on one axis and you've got expectations on the other axis. And as you look at each of these quadrants, let's say you're a parent that demands so much. You have really high expectations, but there's not a lot of love there. There's not a lot of affection or responsiveness. They call that parenting style authoritarian. If there's all the love there, but not really any expectations, if you're just like best friends with your kid, that parenting style is called permissive. If you're not showing love or affection and you also don't have expectations, then you're just neglectful. But if you can manage to have really high expectations and also a really high amount of love, responsiveness, affection, then that is a parenting style called authoritative. And all the studies again and again and again show that authoritative parenting is most likely to set your kids up for success and reduce risk factors. If you're permissive or authoritarian or neglectful, that's when you start to see kids develop really low self-esteem. They have difficulties making decisions. They have low socialization, a lack of empathy, all sorts of problems. And so for me, I don't know if it's helpful for you, Corey, you can share your thoughts, but for me to always just remember as a parent, if I want to help my kids be successful with whatever's going to come their way, I just have to remember high expectations and I also show a high amount of love. That's interesting. I hadn't heard that study before. So how then, Kellen, can we apply that to sort of this section that you're talking about of helping your children as they go through really difficult situations? Yeah, so when it comes to some of those kind of more practical pieces of advice, you know, how do I implement that while going through really tough situations? I do want to get to that. We're going to spend some time there. But I also want to mention there is study after study that shows the importance of having both of those things. When it comes to parental love, the love side of it, one of the easiest ways that we can look at and measure the effectiveness of that is to, is to look at examples of war. Because war is absolutely awful, and especially for children. You think about, you know, there's death and injury, disability, illness, even rape and prostitution. Displacement. Yeah. Becoming a refugee, you know, you lose your community, you lose culture, loss of education. I think of that uh, video that I believe we've talked about in the podcast before. I think at least in a bonus episode. Right? Is that what it was? Okay, on Patreon. But yeah, we talked about, it's this video, you may have seen it. It was a video of a, a little girl and it shows her kind of like a day by day, one picture per day or a short video clip every day as her country goes from just normal life to being war torn and what it's like to be a refugee and taken away from her parents and all these things. It was basically showing what would happen in the UK if if it was the same situation as Syria, just trying to raise awareness that this is happening to children out there. And man, it was that an impactful video. So yeah, to say that war has an impact on children, it can't, it means an understatement, right? There's no way to state that accurately enough. Yeah, so war, as awful as it is, it really provides a good case study for us to see different parenting styles and how that affects children. There was a study that the findings were published in a peer-reviewed journal. A summary of it says, parental love and family intimacy have been shown to assist children muster their competencies, and to increase coping among families that endure war and armed conflict. Another study here, summary, says, family cohesion 
and provision of a sense of security increase resilience among children exposed to political conflict, especially in combination with maintenance of familiar routine. Here's another one. The summary states, children with positive perceptions of parental protection, support, and monitoring frequently overcome the traumatic events involved in political conflict with no decline in mental health or functioning. I actually read all the way through one study that I found really interesting. The research article that they published is entitled Children Affected by War and Armed Conflict, Parental Protective Factors and Resistance to Mental Health Symptoms. And they looked at a group of 277 Israeli youth between the ages 12 and 14. And these youth had been exposed to protracted periods of war, missile bombardments, terrorism. In fact, the study was conducted a few weeks after Operation Pillar of Defense, which was this eight-day Israeli operation in the Gaza Strip. There was an estimate of 2,221 rockets, 196 mortars, and, and these children were exposed to a wide variety of really stressful and, and traumatic events. Again, going back to that four different parenting styles, right? Love and expectations. If you'll remember, authoritative is the one that we want. It has both of those factors. One of the findings from the study was that maternal authoritativeness and warmth functioned as protective factors and had moderating effects on the relation between political life events, exposure, and mental health symptoms. They could see and measure how much that, that provided a buffer. And yes, there were still impacts on mental health with all of these traumatic events, but at least in this situation, it was the authoritativeness of mothers that gave children that resilience. I will call out, this is kind of interesting, but the father's parenting style and warmth had no significant relationship with children's mental health outcomes. Nice. That takes some pressure off of me then, I guess. <laughs> Do whatever you want. <laughs> okay, so a, a few practical things. And this kind of falls into those categories that you mentioned before, Corey. But one of the best things you can do as a parent is to encourage, you know, not force or give pressure, but just encourage your children or your child to openly share their feelings. They've got to be able to express it. And you have to be able to let them know that what whatever they're feeling is normal. In most cases, those unpleasant feelings will pass if you give them an opportunity to open up. And so with any sort of traumatic event or challenges that you'll face, there's going to be some level of loss or grief and you have to allow your child to grieve. One thing that I made the mistake of until I learned a little bit more about this was that I guess I wasn't always honest with my children. If, if there was something wrong, I would say, oh, there's nothing wrong. Everything's okay. And that's one of the biggest mistakes parents make but it's important to be extremely honest. You can still be reassuring while being honest, but don't say nothing's wrong if something is wrong. And, you know, I ran into something along this line with my research as well, which was to be open with your children about what you do know and don't know about a situation. As parents, I think sometimes we want to have all of the info. We want our kids to feel confident in us, so we don't like to say, I don't know the answer to that. But I think it does build more trust in your kids if you can be honest and open in being able to say, I don't always have all the answers. Let's find them out together. Yeah, that's such a good point. Another thing that's important is to monitor the way children receive information about what's going on around them. What's not going to be healthy is for them to see really graphic images or to be bombarded by social media all the time. You don't want to hide them from everything that's going on or, or shield them from it. 
especially as they get older, right? You want them to be aware of what's taking place, but it needs to be presented to them in an age appropriate way. And so one thing that's recommended is that, you know, that there are news sources that are designed for children. And oftentimes an article or newspaper is going to be a much better way for a child to absorb something than than to watch the alarmist way it's presented as they're seeing graphic video. And I think this is huge. You know, we've done an entire episode on echo chambers and what social media, the whole way that social media works, right, is to feed back to you what you click on because it makes the company more money. And oftentimes that is more graphic, more clickbait, more dramatic. It can include more misinformation. Social media companies don't care if you're getting misinformation or not. They care that you're clicking and making them more ad revenue. And so, yeah, we have to be really careful what our kids are getting themselves into, you know, making sure that they're not getting propagandized. They're not turning to extremes. Even the news, right, is going to present things in a way that will get you to stay and to continue to watch. And that doesn't always mean presenting the important facts. It just means presenting the sensationalized audio or video or whatever that may be. And usually with their own political spin or take on the happenings. Good. So I'll just mention a couple of other things here that are extremely important. It's so essential that we make sure play is a big part of a child's life, even while going through difficult things. Play is not only a distraction from hard things, which which is good for them to distance themselves from it, but it's also a way that children cope. It's a way that they process. There's so many benefits to like physical activity, sports, outings, getting them out, but it can't even be like playing games or watching a movie or reading. They need to have fun. And that needs to be part of what they experience each day. Corey, I have a grandmother. She's in her 90s. And her childhood years were extremely difficult. There was a lot going on in the world at the time. And she faced extreme poverty. You know, and she would talk about like, it was such a big, exciting thing that each of the children got a gift for Christmas and the gift was an orange and they hadn't like ever tasted anything that delicious and sweet. And at one point in her life, there was like a, a packet of jello, like the powder that you use to make jello. And every few days it was this treat to like lick her finger, dip it in the powder and put it back in her mouth. And that was like dessert. And so very challenging situations, lots of health problems in the family, so many things. But she has so many fond memories of them doing these little contests, like trying to throw pebbles into a bucket. Or she talks about making little dolls out of like corn husks, and they would just play pretend with those. And so it's not like there needs to be a lot of resources, but that play is just such an important part of how children cope with life. General stress relieving techniques like conscious breathing is so important. But the last thing I'll mention here is that it's Critical to maintain routines as much as possible, even when everything is disrupted, right? If, if you're a refugee fleeing from your home, finding ways to still have rituals or, or routines around the meals that you eat or family activities is a way to create stabilization and kind of psychological safety for children. You know, I've noticed over time that our bedtime routine gets longer and longer. <laughs> it used to be that quick, simple, read a book, go to bed. And, you know, now we added read a book, 
listen to a song, go to bed. And, and, and at this point, there's like eight different things that we do at bedtime. And sometimes I'm, you know, I feel like, oh man, why does this bedtime routine have to take so long? But I also recognize that the kids love it and they need it. If we miss one little piece of that routine, then they won't go to sleep until it happens. And so in a extremely sort of uncertain time when children are going through a ton of change, having those routines to sort of rely back on and say, we're still us, right? Our family hasn't changed. Our lives in this new setting will continue to go on. You know, whatever that looks like. I think I can see why that's incredibly important to a child. And I think it's a good sort of reminder to create routines if you don't have any. You know, traditions, they can be as mundane as what you do before you go to bed each night, but they can also be fun traditions around holidays and things like that that are sustainable through difficult times. Yeah, so researching this, going through this, learning from you as well, Corey, makes me want to be a a better parent. (laughs) I'm sure as far as parenting skills, parenting ability, as far as all of that goes, like I probably rank pretty low. I'm right there with you. But again, I'm comforted by, hey, if I can just have so much love, if my children know that, that they're loved and they feel that while also holding high expectations for them, then all the details don't matter quite so much. That can be different from family to family. But if those two ingredients are there, that's going to help them be set up for success. So if we combine that with each of those categories that you mentioned and some of these other practical practices that we talked about, I think we can give our children the best chance possible. So there's no sugarcoating that the future is going to suck, right? It's the last thing that a parent wants to hear, but we are in for some real challenges. And throughout the podcast, we've been you know, pretty just blunt and open in saying that like, not everyone is going to make it. Most people won't as collapse progresses. And in the worst of collapse, you have a significant number of people who suffer. And as much as we don't want to consider those things happening to our families or our children, they will. And we have to be prepared for that. And we have to do everything we can to give our children the best chances for success. And in sort of a a somber way of saying this, I guess, or it's not the happiest thing to say, but no matter what happens in the future, you want your children to know that you love them no matter what. And that may be the most important thing. And so no matter how well I feel I can prepare my children for anything, knowing that I'm going to try my hardest, my my number one priority is to make sure that they know that they are loved. 